0: I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail. A state of civil emergency has been declared in Christchurch as fire crews try desperately to gain the upper hand on two raging fronts.
1: Low rainfall, high sunshine hours, a heatwave and widespread dry conditions have been described as perfect conditions for a fire in Nelson which has burned for the past three days.
0: Port Hills. Nelson, Lake Pukaki, Lake orho just some of the most recent devastating fires in New Zealand.
2: There was nothing but blackness, there was no vegetation, There, were, everything that was still standing above uh, ground was on fire.
0: Wildfires are estimated to cost New Zealand about $100 million a year, and researchers say fires are getting more extreme and closer to urban centres.
1: It's not a problem that's just prone to the more remote rural areas. Increasingly, we're seeing these fires involving homes and also you know, large numbers of people that are being affected and needing to be evacuated.
0: Today, we'll be looking at how much of a role climate change plays in the increasing number and intensity of wildfires. And with summer around the corner, are we prepared? First up, though, I'm talking to one landowner who's experienced the nightmare of trying to protect his home from flames.
2: Let me paint you a verbal picture. As we as we drove up, um, the grass was all burned out. Everything was smoking. It was hot as Hades. And as we went around the corner, um, I saw these massive plumes of smoke, realising that it was coming from the direction of my house, and I couldn't look.
0: David Scheele and his family own a cattle farm on the Port Hills in Christchurch. He's a marine scientist at Canterbury University and was on his way home from work when the 2017 fire started.
2: I was apparently, according to my mate, muttering incantations as we went around the corner and he yelled out, Your house is still standing. And when we got up to it, about three minutes later, there was fire within a few meters of it on three sides and uh we rushed out and managed to actually put the fire out before it uh, actually hit the house but by that stage everything else was on fire the trees the cattle yards the uh shed uh, that was uh, near the house that had a games room in it and so on so it was it was all pretty much battle stations by the time we got there
0: so everything's happening so fast. So I assume you didn't really have time to process exactly what that meant for you.
2: Well, when there's action to be had and, and a job to be done, we did it. We had mm. five of us up there. We uh, managed to get our pumps going and managed to put out everything immediately around the house, and uh, we beat back the fire. But, uh, yeah, that it just went on for hours. The fire was raging on so many fronts by that stage
0: the next few days were also nonstop
2: fire is a very funny thing and if you've seen it it moves fast but it it gets pushed by the wind it follows contours of hills and so you get non-intuitive things like some you know we had massive burnings of trees on one side of a a little walkway we had and and the gum trees which are you'd think would catch on fire none of them burned so it was a very odd experience seeing what got taken and what did not get taken so you know when you get back to dealing with the fact things are smoldering uh, for hours and hours I spent a whole day up on the hill trying to Keep the the fires down because every fence, every wooden fence post was alight, and there were still trees there that and the wind had shifted back towards the property, and you don't know if it's going to come back and, and and if it caught on fire again, which it could have done, there was a one row of pine trees straight down to my house, uh, Leyland cypresses. If those had caught on fire, there we were out of water we were, it, it was in the lap of the gods at that stage, so and the fire brigade was out trying to save the neighbor's house, which we had hosed down, but we ran out of water, so you know it, it's a lot of triaging going on and picking the most urgent stuff so it was a it was pretty pretty action-filled three days.
0: It just sounds very intense. Did you did you get much sleep over those three days?
2: Well the first night uh, I realized that uh, my shed may get burned down I thought oh my gosh my tractor's in it then I went down and moved the tractor out into an area that had already burned because you know the old adage is it can't burn twice and then I have a a very nice automobile that was in the same shed. And I thought I better get that. And it t- turned out the battery was dead for some reason. And so I took a battery out of the tractor and ran as fast as I could carrying a 20 kilo battery down, down the driveway and got it managed to get it into the car and drove that up the hill to get that out of the way. So, and I just sat on there all night with, I had a backpack sprayer and I was trying to put down stuff and I had a wet a blanket and trying to knock things down. About 2 in the morning, I was just standing there thinking, well, maybe this is okay. And suddenly, I felt this thing bump me, and I just about jumped out of my skin, and it was, uh, it was a, a cattle beast that had come out of somewhere, and, uh, and there they were, the whole herd of them, and they're looking very forlorn, but uh, they were all there. And uh, so, so I was very glad to see them, and they were very glad to see me. Anyhow, we met up at my neighbor's place at the bottom of a hill, and I don't know. It was a very warm night, and we had, most of us had been out doing stuff. I was still, I still had my tie on. It was great, you know. I forgot to take it, you know. I was completely covered with soot and looked like something that a bedraggled thing that had come out of the deep. But we just lay down on the lawn, and and uh, it was a nice night, and just went to sleep for a few hours, and then at a, uh, the next morning we went into my neighbor's house, and and uh, we didn't want to wake everybody up, and a couple of us found some black instant coffee and some marshmallows, and had a grand breakfast. It was it was nice, and uh, then we went back up the hill, and we got some electric portable electric fencing, and started herding cattle, and it, it looked like something out of Noah's Ark. There were some llamas that showed up from somewhere, some <laughs> sheep, cattle, a couple of horses, you know, it was, and we put some fencing around, and there's a, a big water tank up there that we tapped into, and we managed to get some water into a tank so these poor things could uh, get a drink, so just sort of started, you know, the process of looking after stuff and, uh, and seeing what could be salvaged, so it was a pretty, pretty intense uh, two or three days.
0: But the Port Hills fire would continue to burn for much, much longer. All up 66 days, destroying 11 houses and 2,000 hectares of land. Drought-like conditions set the area up for the February fire. This year we've seen similar dry conditions across different parts of the country. But there have been fires as early as the end of winter. 3,000 hectares of forest and scrub were burnt through around Lake Pukaki in August.
2: 80 people are trapped in Mount Cook Village tonight as a scrub fire burns out of control. It's said to have been started by a camp cooker blowing over in the wind. The blaze flared up on a Twizel
0: riverbed and spread into a large forest area. Then there was Lake Orho last month. More than 5,000 hectares of vegetation gone
1: the blaze destroyed up to 50 homes and other structures, leaving the tiny community ravaged. Helicopters and ground crews are still battling the fire, strong winds though hampering firefighting efforts.
0: All before the end of spring.
1: Those sorts of fire danger conditions start much earlier in the fire season.
0: That's Grant Pierce, a Scion Rural Fire Research Group scientist.
1: Even going back the past couple of years, other fires in and around Dunedin and sort of uh, the October period uh, into September and this Pukaki Downs fire in the Mackenzie country this year was right at the end of August so much much earlier than we would expect uh, to have severe fires that are burning such large areas.
0: Now we can't really talk about wildfires without talking about the weather and in New Zealand our climate is at the mercy of the Nino southern oscillation also known as INSO. It's basically a weather system that occurs every few years in the Pacific Ocean and usually lasts for about a year or two. There are two parts to it, El Niño and La Niña. During El Niño, westerly winds blowing up and over our mountain ranges dump rain in the west while making it very dry in the east. And as for La Niña...
1: Yeah, so I guess this uh, fire season, we're looking at La Nina conditions. So La Nina is the more mild of the phases of ENSO, and it means more northeasterly conditions. So bringing cooler temperatures and higher humidities for our sort of northeastern areas of the country. Uh, And so that could mean a reduction in the sort of normal high fire dangers for some of those areas. A low in saying that many of those areas are currently in near drought conditions. So the Hawke's Bay and north Otago, where we've had lower than normal rainfalls uh, over the winter and past few months, so that uh, we could still expect elevated fire dangers in most parts of the country. Here in New Zealand, these sorts of um, shorter-term climate cycles like El Nino Southern Oscillation tend to be sort of strong drivers of our climate, but we are starting to see evidence, as many other parts of the world are, of the effects of climate change on our uh, fire danger here in, in New Zealand. So by that I mean, obviously, warmer temperatures, lower rainfalls in some areas... Uh, increased westerly winds potentially, and even lower humidities. Uh, And that doesn't mean that that's happening all of the time and every year, but in general we're seeing a trend towards those conditions.
0: How much of this can we put down to climate change?
1: Yeah, it's definitely difficult to attribute at all to climate change, but If uh, we look at other areas of the world, so the big fires that have been happening in North America uh, and also in Australia last fire season, uh, there's definitely been attribution of those events to the general warming in climates and more extreme fire weather conditions.
0: For New Zealand, though?
1: It's partly due to this uh, general warming, but to a large degree also influenced by the shorter-term seasonal cycles that uh, we see every few years as well.
0: And what have we learnt from, you know, fighting recent fires, such as I'm thinking of the big ones like the Nelson fires and the Port Hills fires?
1: Yeah, I think there's been definitely some key learnings out of those major fire events in recent years. The likes of the Port Hills fire was probably our first major fire on the boundary of a a large urban centre. So, again, evidence of the trends that we're seeing in other parts of the world with increasing fires in this rural-urban interface uh, occurring here in New Zealand. So, lessons in terms of the wider population uh, in these rural-urban interface and even within the the major urban centres needing to be aware of fire risks. It's not a problem, it's just... Um, sort of prone to the more remote rural areas. Increasingly, we're seeing these fires involving homes and also large numbers of people that are being affected and needing to be evacuated. New Zealand's had a history of, I guess, significant fires uh, going back a number of years. So a large number of significant forest fires, particularly during the 1970s and 80s, for example. Um, And then... What we've seen more recently is these fires increasingly occur and closer to to where people live, and uh, that has impacts in terms of how the fire agencies are able to respond to those fire incidents, uh, and the need to particularly to evacuate people that are at risk as well.
0: What about lessons from Australia and California?
1: The key lesson is that conditions are becoming more extreme in all parts of the world, and that includes New Zealand, and that we're going to see more of these sorts of fires in future. And I think uh, Lake Ohau is an example of that, where up until relatively recently, uh, we've been exempt from fires impacting on such large numbers of properties. So I think that's a key lesson that we should expect more fires. But I think the other lesson is about our levels of preparedness for these fire events. And I think in general, because of that uh, lack of history of significant impacts on people and property, New Zealanders are in general underprepared and there's much more that we could do in that space That means
0: having a fire plan, knowing how your family can evacuate and making sure vital documents are easy to access. Safe storage, avoid firewood and flammable materials stacked next to the house. And then there's just general maintenance, mowing long grass and getting leaves out of gutters. Design and materials used for homes is also important. Things like sprinklers on the outside and having enclosed wooden decks so that embers can't get under the house.
1: We've seen in fires like the Ohau fire where um, a number of houses were destroyed but a number of others survived and by going around and, and looking at what some of the contributing factors were we can reinforce some of the lessons that have been learned overseas for the New Zealand environment.
0: Right, so the the houses that survived had less flammable material and things like that.
1: Yeah, so they tended to be built from lower flammability materials, uh, corrugated iron exteriors, for example, as opposed to, say, uh, wooden exteriors. They um, had paved areas instead of uh, wooden decks. Uh, Mm. Wooden decks where they were uh, present on the properties that survived were enclosed rather than being open. Even as simple as things like thinking about where you have exposed glazing and windows. So the presence of really large windows, making sure you can, if you can, double glaze those so that uh, where an approaching fire produces heat, that that heat, it's harder to to get into the house and then ignite the house from um, the inside out.
0: And what about plant species?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the key ones is thinking about the garden plantings that you have in and around your property. So we talk about defensible space, so having a zone of separation between the vegetation and the the house itself. So ideally you'd want to have sort of at least 10 metres of open space, whether that's paved areas or lawns or your gravel driveway, those sorts of spaces, but that doesn't mean you can't have any plantings. Where you do have plantings, keeping those well maintained, removing dead material regularly, and we're possible using lower flammability species. So by that I mean plants that sort of retain their green leaves through the summer and don't drop that on the ground. We are possible using some of our native species that uh, are a little more resistant to ignition than
0: some what, of our what uh, are those?
1: other international species. Um, so, so broadleaf species. Um, so things like um, hebes, and as I say, native broadleaves, Not not using things like tussock grasslands, for example, that <laughs> yeah. uh, are often used because they have dry, dead foliage that accumulates, and that can build up.
0: Because the cost can be deadly.
1: Over the years, uh, we've seen an increasing number of these significant events. And so when you have a, a major fire like the Port Hills or even the Lake Ohau fires, uh, the significant costs in terms of the property damage. Uh, but then there's the much sort of more indirect effects on sort of the environment, on things like water quality potentially uh, or water supplies. You know, even the psychological effects of fires, which take much, much longer to, to come to the fore, but still have significant economic impacts. So New Zealand already spends uh, a significant amount of money on responding to fires in the order of sort of, you know, $60 million, I think. And then over the years, another $40 million on average, probably in terms of the average damages. So something in the order of around $100 million a year but there's real potential for that to increase in future as we see more fires, the likes of of Lake O'Hare.
0: Do you feel like at the moment, the way that we work is that we respond to wildfires so it's more like an ambulance at the bottom of a cliff rather than preventing it from happening in the first place?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think if you talk to most fire managers and fire researchers internationally, we would say that's a global problem that, the focus is, for probably too long, been on uh, responding to fires, putting all fires out. But it's certainly about yeah shifting the focus to how do we prevent these fires from occurring and how do we minimise the impacts when these fires do occur.
0: Talk to me about that recovery process. What did that look like?
2: what we did is we've got some very staunch neighbors and uh, and some of them from very firm and long-standing farming backgrounds so we met up at uh, our friend's house the beaties down the hill and about 20 of us met at his house, and uh, we just developed a plan of reseeding, uh, the, sowing grass across the hills again. Mo- what fueled that mostly is that those hills are covered with gorse and haven't been looked after for a long, long period of time. And anybody that's dealt with acres and acres of gorse knows it's, uh, it's a very expensive process and a long process, not only to kill it, but to keep it down and get other vegetation growing. So um, that had all burned. So we decided to um, aerial seed it with grass and do the best we could. And, you know, a lot of the contractors out there, um, I had a mate of mine who was was a a construction company. He sent his big uh, diggers out and just scratched out hundreds of trees. We lost hundreds of 20 years of you know, barb's plantings of decorative trees and uh, shelter trees and that, and they just brought these uh, big diggers up and took stuff away and and managed to to help us out. And they didn't have to do that; they were just everybody was just very nice about everything. And you know, we didn't we never saw bills for a lot of this stuff. They, this a lot of our mates just kicked in and did things, and so that was very useful. Just cleaning the properties up, getting the grass sown.
0: In in terms of. Looking at, like, recovering your property and looking at fire breaks and that kind of thing, have you done anything differently in order to prevent anything like a wildfire from happening in the future or at least mitigating the losses?
2: Yeah, so two things. We all have uh, little mini tankers up there and we've maintained them and made sure that they were all operable, which they were before the fires, but we've uh, put a bit of urgency about making sure that anyone that needs it can go and grab it instantly. My mate Roger down the hill, he's a farmer by, by trade. He's got several farms, and he's very good at it, and he has big machinery. So he came up with his bulldozer and cut uh, fire breaks and tracks around a lot of the property. We and the neighbors all did that. And so we have better grazing management, more tracks on the property, which act as fire breaks, more ways to get around. If something does happen, you can access it and and bring a tanker down and put it out and so on. So I think there's a lot better uh, land management up there now that uh, we had a chance to reconfigure everything.
0: Is the recovery process uh, in terms of your properties and your neighbors' properties, is that basically all done now?
2: Yes and no. I mean, part of it is it's just a bit hard to be done when you've lost 20 years worth of plantings and it's a bit of work and some things get put on the back burner. In our own property, we haven't replanted all of that yet the harsh reality is both my wife and I work about 50 or 60 hours a week in a real job so you know there's not a lot of time to do the rest and it gets uh, somewhat expensive to keep hiring people to do it for us so you know trying to make up for 20 something years of development and a and even 3 or 4 years can be somewhat daunting but uh, you know we feel pretty happy about uh, you know just you always feel happy about surviving
0: I mean, you've been through what many would say is a very traumatic experience, David, but you seem to have a very positive outlook on everything.
2: I mean, part of it is that, I don't want to put too fine a point of I had a reasonably adventurous life with the job that I have and, you know, being in boat wrecks and you know (laughs) and diving accidents that you know there's a lot of things that go wrong when you spend a lot of time at sea or you know around the countryside in areas where there aren't too many what you might call safety nets so from my point of view is keep your head do what needs to be done and you know there's always another day I mean otherwise life would be boring.
0: That's it for today, I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to David Schill and Grant Pierce. Matewa